Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, it's great to be with you on this Sunday morning and we celebrate together the love of God in Christ Jesus. Many of you will, will remember from last week that uh, I gave you two challenges. I challenged you uh, to help us to meet some physical needs by gathering together non-perishable items for the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission, for Storehouse for Jesus, and for uh, City Lights Ministries. And I also gave you a challenge to find and put in one of the windows in your home an electric light as a symbol of your, of your faith and of your hope in Jesus Christ as the light of the world. And I wanted to give you a, a little report as to uh, what took place once uh, that challenge was delivered. We, we invited you to bring uh, those non-perishable items for four hours from 11 to 3, and uh, what happened was really amazing. Uh, there was a steady stream of cars not too long after the challenge, and we received some 1,245 items an hour with a total of about 5,100 items brought for those three ministries. Uh, by God's grace, uh, we were able to gather together 1,500 uh, cans of beans and veggies, some 850 soups, 800 rice and pasta mixtures, uh, 365 other mixes, 350 drinks, uh, 330 uh, cans of, of tuna and chicken, 250 breakfast items, 220 canned pastas, 200 snacks, 150 peanut butter and jellies, 135 cans of fruit, and some of you really sacrificed, and we received no fewer than 30 paper towels and Kleenex boxes, which was a huge, huge sacrifice. And I want to thank you. It was, as I said, really amazing to sit there and watch car after car after car come by and drop off that uh, food. The other challenge that I gave you was uh, a challenge that was more than just putting a candle in your window. It was a way to bear witness and bear testimony to the hope that we have in Christ. And I challenged you every night as you put that candle in the window uh, to do that and to pray as a family for your neighbors, for their physical well-being and for their spiritual well-being and for the opportunity to share with them the hope that you have, hoping and praying that that single light in a single window in your home night after night might raise questions uh, about what you're doing and why? And uh, I know in my neighborhood, I've seen several homes with those single uh, candles in the window. And I want to thank you for uh, engaging in this way of both serving and sharing together as a church. Now, why did we do this? Well, we saw last week that uh, it's because God gives his people strength 
to endure trouble when their, when their faith and hope rest in who he is, it is because of that that we're able to display generosity and that we're able to have hope. By faith, we can be strong and generous in dangerous times. By faith, we can be strong and full of hope for today and for tomorrow. I want to remind you that how we respond, you and I, how we respond to danger says a great deal about the things we truly believe in. And I want to thank you for your response so far. See, this is our moment. This is our moment to put on display where our hope and where our strength comes from in a season of great powerlessness and a season of great fear. One of our staff members was telling me that uh, just before the social distancing order uh, came about, that he was finishing up in, in, uh, in his gym and, and uh, the gym owner came to him and said, you're a religious man. What do you think about this pandemic? And what he was probably really doing and wondering is what many of us, uh, in many of us in our culture are wondering, and that is, where is God in all of this? If, if God is great and if God is truly good, why, why does he allow things like this? How, how can he allow things like this? And where do you find hope in times like this? Those are the questions that I want to tackle with you today, and, and really, this is a good time to do it. Uh, I don't know if you saw this or not, but two Fridays ago, we had 100,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States. Just this past Wednesday, it doubled to 200,000. The question of where is God in all of this and where is hope is, is not one that is just for the beginning. It is going to be uh, an ongoing set of questions. And so this is a great time for us to ask that. And it's a great time for us to ask it because today is Palm Sunday, in the beginning of what is uh, traditionally known as Holy Week, the week before Jesus' death on the cross. And the answers to those two questions are ultimately found right there. And so it is a great time for us to try to answer them and to go to that place where the answer is found. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, this morning to Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 46. And we want to look at uh, the climax, what is beyond a shadow of a doubt, the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, his death. We begin in verse 33 where the scripture says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they, the soldiers, cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. The soldiers, verse 36, also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, why save yourself? There was also an inscription over him, 
This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us too. But the other, the other verse 40 rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due of our own, due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 12 to about 3 noon our time. And the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, Father, as we gather around this sacred moment in time, my prayer is that you would grant a fresh and a refreshed understanding of what transpired at the cross that you might strengthen the hope of those who have put their faith in you and that, Father, for others who are watching and hearing, who are looking for hope, that they will find their hope anchored in this one place, the cross of Jesus. And I pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this gospel it comes from the physician and the follower of Jesus, Luke. And he records for us here, obviously, the final moments of Jesus, but also the final words of Jesus. Someone has said that uh, to die the, the death of a, of a crucifixion was actually to die a thousand deaths before you died. You would be stripped naked large nails driven into the hands uh, and uh, attached to a crossbar. And then those same large nails used to be uh, driven into the feet in a post. And the, pe the person was then raised up and set in place for the whole world to see their humiliation and their suffering. And the suffering was real and it was severe with, with severe inflammation, swelling around the wounds, all around those nails, unbearable pain from torn tendons, an unending uh, discomfort from a strained body, encroaching asphyxiation, throbbing headache, burning thirst. All of these things compounded it. But, but it's curious that as we read this, this story, as, as Luke brings us to this site, he doesn't really mention any of that. And there's a good reason for that. He doesn't need to because everyone in the first century understood that crucifixion was terrible. The, the simple statement, he was crucified, was enough uh, to uh, send shudders down any first century person's back. But Jesus' suffering 
And this is what Luke and the gospel writers help us to see. Well, it was not simply physical and it wasn't simply emotional, but it was also spiritual. The cross wasn't the end of Christ's life work, but actually the climax of it. And so there, dying as he is, Jesus is on a mission for the eternal good of others. And we see this most plainly in what he says. Luke records for us three of the final uh, seven words of Jesus. And they're significant because they point us to what Jesus is about as he dies. You see, as he's dying, he's also working. As the God become man, he's acting as a mediator between God the Father and humanity. He's doing something that only he can do. Jesus is addressing, and I want you to see this, in his dying, Jesus is addressing the ultimate pandemic. And Jesus is offering the ultimate treatment and the ultimate cure for that ultimate pandemic. He's offering and addressing the original disease that has spread worldwide and across multiple generations. The Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, violating God's will, they fell from that state of innocence that God had given them. And as a result, human beings from that point forward all have a universal tendency toward sin. And with, a, with our sin, there came a radical change that took place in the universe. Death came to the whole human race and the whole creation was affected. And as a consequence, the Bible says is now subject to decay. And what that means is, and this is so critical for us, what that means is that the things that are now are not what they were originally meant to be. There, there are now a whole host of moral evils that God never intended uh, war and crime and cruelty and injustices. And there are also a whole host of natural evils that have also come to us, earthquakes and uh, hurricanes and tornadoes and disease, cancers and plagues, and yes, even pandemics. The hope of the believer and the only hope for the restoration of the world lay in, in a real treatment and a real cure for the real pandemic that actually lay behind the pandemic we're experiencing now. And that is what we find Jesus bringing with his cross. He's taking the role of a mediator. He's making himself the ultimate treatment and the ultimate cure that we need for this ultimate pandemic of sin that we are in. I want you to see with me this morning that he takes three steps that believers need to understand and celebrate and share with a world in desperate need of hope. Look with me, first of all, in verses 33 to 34. On the cross, I want you to notice with me how it is that Jesus speaks to God for mankind, particularly in verse 34, where Jesus begins his time on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Without uh, question, crucifixion is, is uh, one of the most humiliating and painful forms of execution ever devised. And yet what we find here is 
is powerful. Jesus offers no resistance. He offers and shows no resentment. Instead, he prays for those who are responsible for his death that they might be forgiven. The first task, of course, of a mediator is always to intervene in order to help two parties understand each other. My earliest uh, recollection of mediation came when I was about 13 years old, and I was going through that stage where I resented everything that my mother asked me to do. And I didn't resent it with my father because I still had a healthy fear of him, but uh, I was losing that with my mother. I was going through what so many 13 and 14-year-old boys go through. And uh, my mother and I would go round and round and round afternoon after, after afternoon, you know, over really serious things like taking out the trash. And I can remember more than one time where I would be up in my room fuming with my, uh, my music on as loud as I could put it on, and my mother would be meeting my father at the door going, he hates me, Steve hates me. And my dad would come up the stairs and he'd say, Steve, what in the world is going on? And my response to him would be, my mama hates me, she hates me. And he would have to take the time to explain me to my mother and explain my mother to me. He was acting as a mediator. Now, if you've got Boys, particularly ladies who are on their way to becoming 13 and 14, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's very possible that you will find you need a mediator like that too. But the first task of a mediator is to intervene in order to interpret two parties to each other. And that is exactly what we find Jesus doing right from the start. And though he's undergoing intense brutality, Luke shows us that Jesus is thinking not about himself, but he's thinking about others. And just as that Roman detail of soldiers has done its work of physically putting him on the cross, Jesus cries out to the Father for them and for all those who put him there politically and for those who put him there spiritually. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is extraordinary. You know, you, you don't really know a person until you see them at times of success and until you see them at their lowest in their times of greatest pain. You want a picture into who Jesus is? Look right here. Look at the cross. He's practicing what he preached. He preached loving your enemies. He preached praying for them. And that is exactly what he does here. Father, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so he's praying for them and he's praying, quite frankly, for you and, to, and for me. Because yes, we, we too are his enemies. The Bible describes all of us as alienated from a holy God and enemies of his because of our rebellious thinking and our rebellious behavior. And when Jesus died, the Bible says he died for us, his enemies, so that we might be made his friends. I want you to notice especially how he does this. Look at verse 34, part A. Jesus intercedes. He says, Father, forgive them. And what he's asking for here is, is for their sins to be blotted out completely. And one of the things we know is that uh, 
from Jesus' own words in, in Luke 17 is that forgiveness is always dependent upon repentance. And so what we can say is this, that Jesus is actually praying in brief for something far more comprehensive right here at the beginning of his own crucifixion. He's saying, lead them to repentance and forgiveness on the basis of what I've done. In other words, his prayer shows us the purpose behind his dying and his death. He asks God, by reason of his death for sinners, to forgive those who repent and to who believe in him. Father, you see what I'm suffering. You see what I'm doing. I want to speak to you about them. I want to ask you, on the basis of what I'm doing, to forgive them. But notice something else. Jesus offers not an excuse, but he offers an explanation for us. Jesus adds a reason for his petition for forgiveness. He says they, they don't know what they're doing. As for the soldiers, they're just following orders. They don't yet know who he is or how he might be different from the other two criminals who are, who are being crucified next to him. The religious leaders who orchestrated his death, they don't really know just how wicked what they're doing actually is. And all the rest of us for whom Christ died, we've got our own form of ignorance as well. This is important to see, but we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And we're often blind to our sin as a result. It's so natural to us that we're often ignorant in it. God has to show us our sin and the reason for those odd guilty feelings that we have, but sometimes just can't explain and, and oftentimes, in fact, never can really explain away. And so on the cross, we find Jesus interceding for others just like any good mediator would. He speaks to God on behalf of men, men who don't even know they need to be spoken for and helped. Thirdly, I want you to see with me how Jesus speaks for us even though he's ignored by us. We see that at the end of verse 34. We see the response of their soldiers. They've done their work and they settle down to the customary division of spoils. If you crucified a man, you got whatever he left behind. You got his sandals, his belt, his cloak, his headgear. You cast lots or dice for them. The soldiers, no doubt, thought that they were taking all that they could get from Calvary on that day, but there was actually more for them than sandals and belts and a valuable seamless robe. The crowds there were, were watching, no doubt. They, they thought they were taking all they could take from Calvary, a good show, the latest big event to talk about later, satisfaction at seeing a once popular teacher put in his place. But there's more for them and there's more for us. What Jesus is putting on display is someone willing to love us enough to intercede for us with God for our sin. One willing to care enough to seek 
our eternal good and to open the door to forgiveness for us. One man, one man, look at verse 47. Finally begins putting it all together. He says, surely this man, he, he must be innocent. All of this naturally leads me to ask you a question. In this Holy Week, on this Palm Sunday, in the midst of this pandemic that we're in, and given the pandemic that we've always been in, what do you find at the cross? What is it that you regularly take from there? I suspect some of us take from the cross a, a gruesome story with a kind of happy Easter ending. If we do, we really miss what the cross says and means and why it matters. What we see when we look at the cross and what we should take from the cross is that God in his great grace has given us the ultimate healing, the ultimate treatment for our ultimate pandemic. And he's done it by intervening, interceding for us himself through his own son. He's giving us what we could never give to ourselves, the forgiveness, the cleansing, the release from guilt that we desperately need. You see, my friend, um, on the cross, what we see is the Son of God speaking to God the Father on our behalf, making a way for healing for us. There's something more. I want you to notice with me, particularly in verse 43, that on the cross, Jesus not only speaks to God for us, but he speaks to us on behalf of God. A mediator also seeks to become the one who conveys truth from one party to the other. Jesus' work as a mediator is seen in an unexpected relationship with one of the dying thieves next to him. Luke is the only gospel writer who records this extraordinary conversation between the dying Christ and the dying thief. We can barely imagine all that is going on around them. The scripture says here that the people, probably thousands of them are watching. The religious leaders are scoffing in victory and, and the soldiers are adding their own measure of mockery. And the gospel writers all record that, that the two thieves themselves are mocking Jesus, joining in. And uh, so Jesus is experiencing literally hatred and opposition from all sides as he is hanging, dying. But then suddenly something unexpected happens. 
as his own death draws near, there's, there is, for one of these criminals, a sobering sense of reality, a sudden change of mind, a sudden change of heart, a sudden change of direction. And that one thief begins to rebuke the other thief, admitting, frankly, in verses 40 to 41, his own guilt and admitting the guiltlessness of Jesus. And then he says the most amazing thing. He says, Jesus, remember me. Will you remember me? Will you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? How did the thief know Jesus had a kingdom? From the official plaque over his head? How did he know that Jesus could save him? We really don't know. Most likely he had seen Jesus. He'd already heard Jesus before. But a breakthrough happens. A breakthrough comes as he, watch this now, watch this now, as he faces his, his own final hours, as he faces his own weakness, weak, weakness, as he faces his own powerlessness, as he faces his own ability to control life and people and things. He has a breakthrough, and then in that breakthrough, he is able to see Jesus in his own last hours, also facing the consequences brought by others. But Jesus is remarkably different. He shows himself to be a king with a different kind of kingdom. And it's interesting to hear what the thief is asking for. Most likely, he's saying, Jesus, when when you come again in your glory, you give all the evidence to me of being God's Savior. When you come again in your glory, would you remember me? Would you perhaps give me a second chance? Would you perhaps give me a second chance at a new life in a new world? The love Jesus responds here. Jesus responds with far more than the man could have ever asked for or imagined. He says, I'm going to do more than remember you. And I'm going to do it not in the distant future. In fact, Jesus says, verse 43, I promise you that today you're going to be with me in paradise. Paradise uh, is that place of rest for those who have been faithful to the Father between death and the resurrection. And so here, what we find is the ultimate mediator now reversing his work and speaking to men for God. And what a word he has. And he says, for anyone, anyone, even the most hardened, even the most uh, evil of criminals, who is on the very edge of death for anyone who will change their minds and admit their guilt and God's righteousness and seek him in Christ, there's a breakthrough that's possible. There's a breakthrough that's possible for anyone who will own their weakness, for anyone who will own their powerlessness, for anyone who will own their guilt. A breakthrough is possible. There is a cure. There is a treatment. There is a way out. There's a way ahead, a way forward. There is forgiveness and cleansing. There is release. There's healing.
And Jesus himself suffering the excruciating pain of bearing the sins of the world and experiencing the, the right and just punishment for that sin says to the dying thief, you are forgiven. You can be with me regardless of what you've done. There is a place even for you. All is not lost. Even on this cross, all is not lost. For you see, I am your second chance. I am your treatment. I am your cure. I am the treatment and cure for your greatest disease. I am the treatment, I am the cure for a world gone wrong. I am the treatment, I am the cure for a world in chaos. I am the treatment, I'm the cure for a world that's undergoing incredible decay. Your hope can be in me. I am your second eternal chance. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need a breakthrough. You know what? Some of you are actually finding in this uh, pandemic, with this quarantined life we're living, some of you are beginning to see, some of you who are believers and some of you who are not, are beginning to see that the life you've been living has hardly been worth it. Some of you have been living so fast that the guilt of your past hasn't really shown up until the, 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 the pause of the present. Some of you have been living so fast that the meaninglessness of your life has been covered over by busyness and and now, in these days of quarantine, it's starting to become pretty obvious that your life is not only not what you expected it to be, but it isn't what you know it should be. I wonder, quite frankly... If God isn't using this time to help us see and understand our need for a second chance, for forgiveness, I wonder if he isn't showing us in some fresh ways the power of the real pandemic 
in our lives and our need for this cross. Finally, I want you to see with me in verses 44 to 49 that on the cross, Jesus surrenders himself to bring God and us together. He says, finally, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, a mediator is finally committed to forming a a connecting link between two alienated parties. His goal is to bring them together. And I want you to see with me, as Jesus' dying time draws near, there there is a, a, a dramatic darkness that falls over the land. From 12 noon to 3 p.m., a blackness no one can ignore. In the temple, there is recorded for us the fact that that inner veil that separated the presence of a holy God in the temple from the worship of unholy people, that veil was severed, torn in two. The darkness showing that judgment had actually come. But this judgment that had come was a judgment that the people could see, but they they couldn't feel. The torn veil shows that a new way to God has come. One that would not be immediately recognized by them, but was real nonetheless. This judgment and this way to a holy God had been accomplished by the one into whose hands he had placed his spirit, given his spirit to the Father. Suddenly, as Christ breathes his last, there is a way through the separation that exists between a holy God and sinful humanity. There is a way out of the hostility. Suddenly, reconciliation has become a reality. And in the place of punishment, the punishment that Christ took for us, there comes an invitation. And God the Father in Christ says, Come in, come to me. My son has satisfied my justice and made a way for you to be healed. Healed. Made whole. Jesus accomplished the ultimate work of the the ultimate mediator. And in the most extraordinary way, he not only sought to bring the Father and sinful humanity together with words, but with the ultimate deed of sacrificing and surrendering himself so that enemies might become friends of God.
There's something deep within the human spirit that cries out for what the cross offers. You and I are never right and you and I are never really whole until that brokenness with our creator is resolved. Until somehow, some way, we've gotten the cure for what ails us. That's who Jesus is, and that is what he has done. (laughs) And his treatment is a real treatment. His cure, a real cure. At the end of apartheid in South Africa, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up to deal with the gross and horrific injustices that had been perpetrated against black Africans in that country. One particular officer by the name of Vanderbrook was brought before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and made to stand trial before the widow of a man that he had killed and who was also the mother of a young man he had killed. And in the course of that courtroom scene, the story unfolded of how Vanderbrook had first captured the son, taken him, bound him, and thrown him alive on a fire. And as the young man died that horrific death. He and his other officers partied through the night, turning his body over and over and over again until it was nothing but ashes. Some eight years later, Vanderbrook returned again and took the husband of the family, bound him, and then several hours later brought the wife to watch her husband die, just as the son had died. The widow in the courtroom that day never forgot what she saw, but she never forgot either what she heard. Her husband was a believer, a follower of Jesus, as was she. The last words she heard her husband say were these, forgive him, forgive him, forgive him. When the court asked the widow what she wanted for Vanderbrook, she said, I want three things. She said, first, I want him to take me to the place where they took the lives of my family and I want to gather their ashes and give them a proper burial. She said, secondly, Vanderbrook has taken from me all the family that I have And I want him to come and visit me in the ghetto twice a month and to spend two days with me every month so that I might be a mother to him. I've got a lot of love still to give. And I want him to receive the love I have. 
And finally, she said, I want him to know that God forgives him and I forgive him. And with those words, Vanderbrook collapsed, overwhelmed by this living demonstration of the cure and the treatment of Jesus Christ for this human malady we call sin. Someone began singing Amazing Grace in that courtroom. She made her way over and helped pick him up and embraced him. The light of the world, the hope of our world is Jesus. I don't know what you take from the cross, but my hope is that what you take is a mediator and that looking at the cross, you can celebrate the fact that Jesus stood in your place, took your punishment for you, and made a way for you to be forgiven. I'm hoping and praying that as you look at the cross this morning, that you will also be able to say, Jesus paid it all. And because he paid it all, all to him I owe. I owe to him my everything when times are good and it appears that I have everything under control, that my hope and my trust really and truly is only in him. And my prayer is that even in this pandemic, when everything is so chaotic and our world so full of danger, that you will be able to go to the same cross and say the same thing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he has washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt, who raised this dying life and gave it life again. Father, find us on this Palm Sunday and in this Holy Week, celebrating the grand fact that the pandemic behind our pandemic is already one with a treatment and a cure. That you have made a way for us and at the end of the day and at the end of our lives, you have made an eternal way for us, our peace, our rest, our comfort, our joy is in Christ, in Christ alone. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.